So today we're continuing our Advent series, and Advent is a, a season of expectation. Uh, it's a season in which we don't just look forward to presents and family and all the fun things that come along with Christmas, but we reflect back on the season of expectation um, and the time of the coming of Christ for those who look forward and long for the coming of the Messiah. We also daily look forward with eagerness to growing in our relationship with Christ, knowing that He is with us. And then ultimately, we look forward to when He will come again to restore all things. In fact, Advent comes from a Latin word that refers to, to Christ's second coming. And so we look forward with expectation, and we celebrate the, the King who is humble, as we learned last week from Ben. Someone, Jesus, who comes in humility, who came as a baby, who came like us in our weakness. And today we look at how we came for the purpose of suffering and in giving us comfort in our suffering. And in looking forward, we'll also celebrate the victorious King, our Savior, and our perfect Messiah. But please uh, join me in a word of prayer as we open this message. Father, we thank you uh, for the great love that you show in Christ coming in humility and as a suffering servant. That he might take upon our sins, that we might be free indeed as we sung about in these songs, and be able to freely worship you. Pray that you open our minds to this glorious truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So it truly was a time of expectation uh, when Jesus came, and not just because the people were living under oppression, under the Roman Empire, and they longed for a savior. They longed to be released and to have their independent nation again. Um, but more than that, there was a, a specific reason, there was a lot of expectation in that specific time. And if you read in the book of Acts, um, it talks about how there were many people in that time that kind of rose up and, and had a following. But unlike Jesus, when they eventually died, their movement ended. Because they did not rise from the grave. But there were many who came claiming to be the Messiah. And there's a reason for that. If you look back in the book of Daniel, there's an amazing prophecy um, that says... Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. So... Little math from the math teacher. Uh, 7 plus 62 is 69. And the sevens here refer to periods of seven years. So if you do the math of 69 times 7, you get 483 years. 
And uh, scholars believe that the decree to rebuild the Jewish temple was given by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, in the year 457 B.C. So, if you do 457 B.C. plus 483 years, that lands you at 2780, which is a what scholars think Jesus' ministry began. So they were expecting, all right, now is the time that the Messiah is supposed to come. We're under Rome, we're under the yoke of Rome. It's been 483 years since the decree was given. Now is the time. So they were looking forward with expectation for that reason. But they had a specific thing they were expecting. And, you know, we in our own day, we have our own expectations of our own heroes, um, our own cinematic heroes, if you were. Um, it's been interesting watching some movies with our children, and when it gets to that intense part where the protagonist is facing trial and danger, they get a little scared and say, it's okay, we know that they're gonna be okay in the end, right? And if you go to a movie of a certain genre, a superhero movie, an action movie, um, a animated movie, you pretty much know, okay, maybe some side characters are in trouble, but the protagonist, they're going to face trials, but they're going to be okay in the end. And so there's very much an expectation that the Messiah was going to be a victorious, conquering king. In fact, we see this in the interactions of Jesus with his disciples. In fact, he explained to them here that he needed to suffer. He explained to um, his disciples that he would be killed, he would face suffering at the hands of the leaders of that day, and he would rise again on the third day. And Peter, who had just proclaimed, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, said, no, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That did not fit his paradigm, that the anointed one would suffer. Just as it would not fit our paradigm that some Tom Cruise character actually dies in one of his action movies, right? We know he's going to be okay. Um, in fact, we know that there was this misunderstanding because after he died and he was walking with his followers on the road to Emmaus, he said, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, because they were, were dejected, reasonably so dejected, that Jesus, when they had hoped in, had died, how could this happen? And he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning him. We could say that, that they missed an important part of the trailer. That the king, the Messiah, indeed had to suffer. And so today we're going to talk about why. What was the purpose in the suffering of the Messiah? Was it just masochism? No. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of God's love shown to us in the suffering of Christ and of Christ's love for us. Suffering is to submit to or be forced to endure pain, distress, loss, and damage. And it's really important to understand that in this context, Christ submitted himself to suffering. He willingly laid down his life. It was not taken by him, from him by force, but it was something that he submitted to. 
But again, we go back to the expectation, and they were not expecting a suffering Messiah. Even though we're about to read, uh, there were plenty of prophecies predicting that the Messiah would suffer. In fact, they couldn't kind of wrap their minds around the suffering Messiah, that there was actually a school of thought that there would be two Messiahs. There would be Messiah ben David, who, like David, was a conquering king, would be the conqueror, the hero, the mighty one. And then there would be Messiah ben Joseph, who, like Joseph, um, in the story of going to Egypt, being enslaved, faced a lot of suffering, that, that the Messiah would also face suffering. But there would be two. And we'll see throughout these series that actually is joined in one perfect Savior in Jesus Christ. But this is the uh, one of the most amazing prophecies that, that kind of led to this school of thought that there would be a Messiah ben Joseph, a suffering servant who is distinct from Messiah ben David. I think this is one of my favorite passages in the, in the Old Testament um, for many reasons. One reason is just how clearly it points to Christ. And remembering this was written over six centuries before he was even born. And in fact, the... The original language talks about a piercing even before crucifixion was even invented. This is Isaiah 53. It says, Who would have believed what we heard? Who saw the Lord's power in this? He grew up like a small plant before the Lord, like a root growing in a dry land. He had no special beauty or form to make us notice him. There was nothing in his appearance to make us desire him and ask forgiveness for those who sinned. He was hated and rejected by people. He had much pain and suffering. People would not even look at him. He was hated. We didn't even notice him. But he took on our suffering our suffering on him and felt our pain for us. He saw his suffering and thought God, or we saw his suffering and thought God was punishing him. But he was wounded for the wrong we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him, and we are healed because of his wounds. We have all wandered like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way. But the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. He was beaten down and punished, but he didn't say a word. He was like a lamb being led to be killed. He was quiet, as a sheep is quiet while its wool is being cut. He never opened his mouth. Men took him rough. Men took him away roughly and unfairly. He died without children to continue his family. He was put to death. He was punished for the sins of my people. He was buried with wicked men, and he died with the rich. He had done nothing wrong. He had never lied. But it was the Lord who decided to crush him and make him suffer. The Lord made his life a penalty offering. But we will see his descendants and live a long... He will see his descendants and live a long life. He will complete the things the Lord wants him to do. After his soul suffers many things, he will see life and be satisfied. My good servant will make many people right with God. He will carry away their sins. For this reason, I will make him a great man among people, and he will share in all things with those who are strong. He willingly gave his life. He willingly gave his life and was treated like a criminal. But he carried away the sins of many people and asked forgiveness for those who sinned. Mm -hmm. This, I love this, not only because it so clearly points to the uh, role of the Messiah points to Christ, gives evidence that what he did 
was prophesied centuries and centuries in advance. But it shows to us the love of God and the love of Christ. That he would take on, willingly take on punishment and suffering for our sins that we deserve. In fact, we know that this speaks of Christ because in Luke, I encourage you to look at these verses in your, your own time of study, but in Luke, he specifically says that these verses are fulfilled in him. And the New Testament prof, or the New Testament authors recognize this as well in many places. That these words speak of the role in ministry of Jesus, the suffering king. And they comfort us because they show us the death of the love of God. When we're not feeling that feeling, we can look at the cross and see evidence of the love of God. This is what D.A. Carson says. In the darkest night of our soul, we have something to hold on to that Job never knew when Job suffered. We know Christ crucified. Christians have learned that when there seems to be no other evidence of God's love, they cannot escape the cross. The suffering king on the cross is something that we remember every week we do communion. And even as we celebrate his coming, we look forward with thankful hearts to what he would ultimately do for us. The ultimate purpose for which he came. So one of the things that we learn about the suffering of Jesus, as much that we can learn, we're going to talk about three things, is that King Jesus suffered in many ways for the purpose of our salvation. There was purpose before eternity began that this would happen. The Father knew before eternity began. Jesus knew that this beautiful redemption would take place. The book of Hebrews talks about this, and Hebrews is a beautiful book talking about the excellency of Christ, the superiority of Christ, and how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And it talks about his purpose in suffering and his purpose in coming in weakness in the form of man. It says, now he's wearing a crown of glory and honor because he suffered and died. And by God's grace, he died for everyone. God is the one who made all things, and all things are for his glory. He wanted to have many children share his glory, so he made the one who leads people to salvation perfect through suffering. Now this doesn't mean Christ wasn't already perfect, but as part of the plan of redemption and atonement, Christ faced temptation and conquered it, victorious over it, like we did not, to prepare for that ultimate sacrifice. Jesus who makes people holy And those who are made holy are from the same family. He's not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. He says, then I will tell you, brothers, my brothers and sisters, I will tell my brothers and sisters about you. I will praise you in the public meeting. He also says, I will trust in God. He says, I am here, and with me are the children God has given me. Since these children are people with physical bodies, Jesus himself became like them. He did this so that by dying, He could destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and free those who were like slaves all their lives because of their fear of death. Clearly, it's not the angels that Jesus helps, but the people who are from Abraham. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, 
so he could be their merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Then Jesus could die in their place to take away their sins. And now he can help those who are tempted, because he himself suffered and was tempted. Jesus suffered to take away our sins. This is the purpose of his suffering. Going to introduce a fancy uh, theological word, which is called penal substitutionary atonement, which sounds fancy, but it's pretty easy. Penal means penalty, substitution means a substitute in our place, and atonement means paying a price, paying a penalty. And so it just means basically Jesus took our place and paid the penalty for our sins that we might have peace with God. Which might seem like, I thought this was, this seems like a basic Christianity 101, and it is one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. It is, is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is actually a doctrine that's under attack both from outside the church and even from within certain elements of Christianity. Um, I like to, what I like to call pop atheism, um, in that it's not so much dealing with serious philosophical arguments or theological arguments, but more in uh, rhetoric and wit, like to dismiss the um, the beauty of, of Jesus' death and resurrection by mocking it as cosmic child abuse. In fact, it's not only from outside Christianity that this kind of this accusation or rejection is made, it's even uh, from within certain strands of Christianity. Um, in this, there are teachers um, within what might be called progressive Christianity, in which I use not in a uh, political sense, but in more of a, in a theological sense, that, that Christianity needs to progress to be relevant in, in modern society. And one of the doctrines that needs to go is penal substitutionary atonement. In fact, this is what one author uh, wrote. It says, the fact is, that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. <laughs> All right. We good? I could just use my teaching voice. <laughs> uh, understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. So, I put that up there for a reason, so that, that we are aware that, that this precious truth that Jesus suffered in our place is rejected by, by even some people within the church, and it's something that those outside the church uh, may mock. But what it really does is it, it underestimates a couple of things. It underestimates the holiness of God and underestimates the seriousness of our sin. And throughout throughout Scripture, it talks about how sin requires a sacrifice. Even from the very first sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, there is an animal sacrifice to provide a covering for them. Throughout the Old Testament, we see animal sacrifice not as just some barbaric thing that they did, but pointing to the ultimate perfect once for all sacrifice of Christ. And we underestimate the seriousness that yes, sinning against the Holy God is a serious thing. And it does require a payment. 
But more than that, it misunderstands the love of God and it misunderstands the relationship between God and Jesus. Because this was not a vengeful father forcing something on his son. This is something that the son willingly accepted. He accepted it for the joy set before him. He accepted it not like, yay, I get to die, but he accepted it gladly, knowing what it would bring, the glory it would bring to his father, the glory it would bring to him, and all those who would believe in him, who would join in the worship in heaven. So it is not child and child abuse. It is a beautiful, beautiful truth that God has given to us that's talking about, talking about throughout Scripture, not only in what we've read today in Hebrews, that Jesus died in our place to take away our sins, not only in Isaiah, that he was crushed for the wrong that he did, that we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. The punishment that made us well was given to him. We are healed by his wounds. In the New Testament, it refers to this. He, Peter, who walked with close relationship with Jesus and heard his teaching, recognized that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Mm-hmm. So, we should hold on to the doctrine. Whether we call it penal substitutionary atonement or not, doesn't matter. The hold on, cherish the truth that Jesus willingly suffered in our place. Yeah. And if we have friends and family who, who question or are struggling with that doctrine, maybe have, have heard false teaching, um, we can lovingly come alongside them with gentleness and kindness um, we have resources in the Purple Book that, that talk at great length about this, give scriptures to support it, and walk them through and show them how this is not something that is twisted, but this is the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Now, without rushing, see if I can get through the other two points. Not only did Jesus suffer that we might have a relationship with God, that we might be forgiven, we might be free from our sin. He also suffered so that he might comfort us in our temporary suffering. Now, I just want to talk quickly about two types of suffering that we face. I'm probably not going to read all of the verses, so I encourage you to, to look back at them. Um, in Hebrews 12, it's always important to, to look back at the context. And before it is Hebrews 11, which is the Hall of Fame of Faith. And we often think of, you know, those heroes that trusted God, they, they saw a breakthrough, they saw miracles, they saw provision, they conquered armies, they closed the mouths of lions, they quenched the fire of the flames, and we're like, yes, preach it, yes, come on. But it follows that there were those who were sought into, there were those who were in prison, there were those who walked about destitute. So it's with that knowing that there, there is suffering in this life, some that's just a part of being a human being and some that comes from um, living for God and trusting Him. That's what this is, is context in. It says because of that, because we are surrounded by all these witnesses who yes have had victory but have also faced great trials and suffering, we should run the race with perseverance and we should look to Christ who suffered and died because of the joy he was set before Him. Because He looked to what God was going to do. And in the same way, we can look to what God is doing through us, in us, and has already done. And because of that, we can have endurance and we cannot quit in the face of trials and suffering. Mm-hmm. 
And so there's two types of suffering you should be aware of. The first, and I'm not going to read through everything to save the time here, but in Romans it talks about how all creation is groaning. These present sufferings that it's talking about are a relation or a result of the fall that everybody faces, whether they're a believer or not. Mm-hmm. Talks about Jesus talks about how rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. We face trials, we face sickness, we face death of loved ones, and ultimately our own mortality. We face loss of jobs, loss of friendship, loss of financial security. All these challenges we face are just a part of living in the natural world. Yet, it also talks about later in this same book, just a few verses on, that we know God works for the good. Right. All things, God works in all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. So we can face these trials, we can face these sufferings, knowing two things, that God is working in them for our good, that God is with us in every trial that we face. And that ultimately he is going to redeem that creation. He is going to make all things new. That this trial, these temptations, they are temporary. So we can take heart. And that's not to minimize our suffering in any way. But we can, like Jesus instructed us, we can be brave in suffering. We can have peace in suffering because Christ has already defeated the world. And he has been suffered. He has suffered in every way we have. He has known lack. He has known rejection. He has known financial insecurity. He has known sickness. He has known exhaustion. He has known stress. And yet, in this, it's beautiful in Hebrews talking about how he came like us in weakness that he might comfort us in our own trials in our own struggles in fact just this this quote says that knowing that suffering is coming inoculates us from a shallow spirituality that believes pain can be avoided or attributes and difficult avoided or attributes difficulties to unfaithfulness we don't face suffering because we are unfaithful to god it's no exception or failing when we suffer. It's a baked-in fact of life. If we believe our efforts are positive thinking will protect us from pain, we're set up for existential shock when it comes. Christ is forthright about this reality and invites us to both accept both the inevitability of trouble and the assurance that He has overcome it. This reality is actually quite liberating. And this comes from an article that is written. Um, in the Advent season of looking forward to Christ coming, making all things new. But while we wait, we can have great endurance. We don't have to have, um, we should be sober-minded, knowing, yes, there will be trouble, but Christ will be with us and give us strength through it. Gonna have to skip uh, ahead to this, because the other type of trial that we should be aware of is there is a suffering that is unique to following God. Um, there is a, a, a suffering that is unique to proclaiming the gospel. And the apostles knew this well and talked about it in many places throughout uh, scripture. This is just a couple. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad in his glory, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Paul also writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have, which is a conflict preaching the gospel, facing opposition because of it. And so I just want to go back to this here. And, you know, um, we are very fortunate that we can freely come here today, we can worship, we can proclaim the whole gospel, we can say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He has, he has died and resurrected from the dead without any threat of, of persecution. Um, but there are places in the world where our brothers and sisters do not enjoy that. And, you know, we, we may face social uh, pressure, social rejection, um, but we should be sober-minded that being willing to suffer is a part of following Christ. Being willing to suffer because of his message, because of proclaiming the gospel. And be prepared that his things should change, whether that's a change in our circumstances where we're called to maybe a different uh, situation, a different country and culture, or whether things change even if, or are changing in our own nation as we kind of transition into what some are calling a post-Christian society. Not to be alarmist, but to have counted the cost and say, you know what, even if I face suffering, if I face loss of opportunity, if I face loss of friends, this is worth it. And I have counted the cost and I'm going to willingly face suffering and rejection but we're told to rejoice because we're looking forward to the glory that is revealed in Christ. In fact, Paul talks at great length about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. By, through suffering, Paul faced great suffering. That through it, he knew more deeply the fellowship he had with Christ. And so he counted it again, even though it's what we would count as a loss. In fact... John and Peter, they faced suffering and when they, when they left here, they're, they've been thrown into prison, they've been falsely accused, they've been told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Uh, and when they left, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy. Like, thank, thank you for this opportunity to suffer for pricing. Doesn't mean we should be desiring, masochistic about, yeah, I want to suffer, but we should see how Christ is at work, even when we suffer for his name. And look forward to the glory that we're revealed in him. And then finally, the last thing that we learn is when we follow the example of King Jesus' victory over suffering, we are inviting others to participate in the Jesus movement, to become members of the family of God, to bring them into relationship with Christ. And the reason it does this is beautifully illustrated in Second Corinthians, where it says, We have this treasure from God, but we are like clay jars that hold the treasure. We have troubles all around us, but we're not defeated. We don't give up. We do not give up the living hope. We're persecuted, but God does not leave us. We are hurt sometimes, but we're not destroyed. We carry the life of Jesus in our own bodies so that the life of Jesus can be seen in our bodies. We are alive, but for Jesus... We are always in danger of death, so that the life of Jesus can be seen in our bodies that die. So death is at work in us, but life is working in you. 
It's written in the scripture, I believe, so I spoke. Our faith is like this too. We believe, and so we speak. God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, and we know that God will also raise us with Jesus. God will bring us together with you, and we will stand before him. All these things are for you. So the grace of God that is being given to more and more people will bring increasing thanks to God for his glory. And the point is this. People see God when we respond faithfully in suffering. Whether that be you're facing sickness, you're facing stress at work, you're facing a challenging family situation, and you respond with hope and faith, people say, well, what's that? That's different. Or if you face suffering for the sake of Christ, and there's so many stories of this throughout the world where people suffer loss of home, imprisonment, beatings, even death, that people see that and they're like, that's real. They're willing to face that. I'm not willing to give anything for anything, really. I'm, I'm about myself. And it's, it's a picture, it tells us about this in Second uh, Corinthians, is that in our bodies, the death of our bodies, the suffering of our bodies, whether that be going through a natural trial or whether that be going through, because Paul went through both. He had some natural trials and he had some things that came about because of, of the message of the cross. It's a demonstration to people of the reality of this message, of the life-transforming power of Christ. We are weak. It's not in our strength. In our weakness, Christ's strength, His sufficiency is shown. His treasure is shown that Christ is truly our treasure. And because of that, we can look forward to the time when we'll stand before God's throne with all the people that He has brought with Him. And there will be no more pain, nor death, nor sadness, nor crying, nor pain, because He is making all things new. And He is the one who offers freely the spring, the water of life. And that's what people see when they see that hope in us, when we're going through a challenge, whether it be natural or because of, of our our resolution to stand for the for the cross, to stand for the gospel, they see and they desire that living water. And this is what we learn from the suffering king. We see, just to kind of summarize, we see that he suffered in many ways. On purpose, willingly, not at the hands of a vegetable father, but submitting to a loving father out of deep love for us. He comforts us in our, our earthly Sufferings that are part of living in a fallen world as human beings and in those that we face because we proclaim Christ the King. And the purpose of that, our suffering is not in vain either. The purpose of our suffering, whether it be the trials we face or whether it be facing persecution, it is the purpose is to direct and point others to Christ the King. And so I just encourage you, there's a lot of scripture. Um, I encourage you to look at the notes that will be posted um, with the sermon online and in your quiet times to, to read through those. And to write your own description of why did Jesus suffer. Why did, make, make it personal. Why did he suffer for you? What, what stripes 
Did he take what transgressions has he freed you from? And, you know, thinking, making it personal, like, this thing that I did that I felt shame for, it's gone. Christ died, suffered purposely for that. He's not surprised by it. He knew it was going to happen. He gave, he gave his life willingly for it. And then pray and ask, how can we be more like Jesus in our suffering and, and with faith and hopefulness facing those challenges that we face as a natural part of the human beings or even because of, of challenges we face because of living for Christ. And then finally, write out a list of topics of how our world can become more like this kingdom of Jesus where we, where we faithfully and hopefully face suffering and challenges. Mm-hmm. And so on that note, we're going to transition to a time of prayer. We're going to actually pray about some of the topics that we've learned about today. And so, can I just pray for my lovely wife to lead us in that?